What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Part 1, Chapter 1 of After London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. After London, or Wild England, by Richard Jeffreys. Part 1. The Relapse into Barbarism. Chapter 1. The Great Forest. The old men say their fathers told them that soon after the fields were left to themselves, a change began to be visible. It became green everywhere in the first spring after London ended, so that all the country looked alike. The meadows were green, and so was the rising wheat, which had been sown, but which neither had nor would receive any further care. Such arable fields as had not been sown, but where the last stubble had been ploughed up, were overrun with couch-grass, and where the short stubble had not been ploughed the weeds hid it, so that there was no place which was not more or less green. The footpaths were the greenest of all, for such is the nature of grass where it has once been trodden on, and by and by, as the summer came on, the former roads were thinly covered with the grass that had spread out from the margin. In the autumn, as the meadows were not mown, the grass withered as it stood, falling this way and that as the wind had blown it. The seeds dropped, and the bennets became a greyish-white, or where the docks and sorrel were thick, a brownish-red. The wheat, after it had ripened, there being no one to reap it, also remained standing, and was eaten by clouds of sparrows, rooks, and pigeons, which flocked to it, and were undisturbed, feasting at their pleasure. As the winter came on, the crops were beaten down by the storms, soaked with rain, and trodden upon by herds of animals. Next summer, the prostrate straw of the preceding year was concealed by the young green wheat and barley that sprang up from the grain sown by dropping from the ears, and by quantities of docks, thistles, oxeye daisies, and similar plants. This matted mass grew up through the bleached straw. Charlock, too, hid the rotting roots in the fields under a blaze of yellow flower. The young spring meadow-grass could scarcely push its way up through the long-dead grass and bennets of the year previous, but docks and thistles, sorrel, wild carrots and nettles found no such difficulty. Footpaths were concealed by the second year, but roads could be traced, though as green as the sward, and were still the best for walking, because the tangled wheat and weeds, and in the meadows the long grass, caught the feet of those who tried to pass through. Year by year the original crops of wheat, barley, oats, and beans asserted their presence by shooting up, but in gradually diminished force, as nettles and coarser plants, such as the wild parsnips, spread out into the fields from the ditches and choked them. 
aquatic grasses from the furrows and water-carriers extended in the meadows, and, with the rushes, helped to destroy or take the place of the former sweet herbage. Meanwhile the brambles, which grew very fast, had pushed forward their prickly runners farther and farther from the hedges, till they had now reached ten or fifteen yards. The briars had followed, and the hedges had widened to three or four times their first breadth, the fields being equally contracted. Starting from all sides at once, these brambles and briars, in the course of about twenty years, met in the centre of the largest fields. Hawthorn bushes sprang up among them, and, protected by the briars and thorns from grazing animals, the suckers of elm-trees rose and flourished. Sapling ashes, oaks, sycamores and horse-chestnuts lifted their heads. Of old time the cattle would have eaten off the seed-leaves with the grass so soon as they were out of the ground, but now most of the acorns that were dropped by birds, and the keys that were wafted by the wind, twirling as they floated, took root and grew into trees. By this time the brambles and briars had choked up and blocked the former roads, which were as impassable as the fields. No fields indeed remained, for where the ground was dry, the thorns, briars, brambles and saplings already mentioned filled the space, and these thickets and the young trees had converted most part of the country into an immense forest. Where the ground was naturally moist, and the drains had become choked with willow roots, which, when confined in tubes, grow into a mass like the brush of a fox, sedges and flags and rushes covered it. Thorn-bushes were there, too, but not so tall. They were hung with lichen. Besides the flags and reeds, vast quantities of the tallest cow-parsnips or jicks rose five or six feet high, and the willow-herb, with its stout stem, almost as woody as a shrub, filled every approach. By the thirtieth year there was not one single open place, the hills only excepted, where a man could walk, unless he followed the tracks of wild creatures, or cut himself a path. The ditches, of course, had long since become full of leaves and dead branches, so that the water which should have run off down them stagnated, and presently spread out into the hollow places, and by the corner of what had once been fields, forming marshes where the horse-tails, flags, and sedges hid the water. As no care was taken with the brooks, the hatches upon them gradually rotted, and the force of the winter rains carried away the weak timbers, flooding the lower grounds, which became swamps of larger size. The dams, too, were drilled by water-rats, and the streams percolating through slowly increased the size of these tunnels till the structure burst, and the current swept on and added to the floods below. Mill-dams stood longer, but as the ponds silted up, the current flowed round and even through the mill-houses, which, going by degrees to ruin, were in some cases undermined till they fell. 
Everywhere the lower lands adjacent to the streams had become marshes, some of them extending for miles in a winding line, and occasionally spreading out to a mile in breadth. This was particularly the case where brooks and streams of some volume joined the rivers, which were also blocked and obstructed in their turn, and the two, overflowing, covered the country around. For the rivers brought down trees and branches, timbers floated from the shore, and all kinds of similar materials, which grounded in the shallows or caught against snags, and formed huge piles where there had been weirs. Sometimes, after great rains, these piles swept away the timbers of the weir, driven by the irresistible power of the water, and then, in its course, the flood, carrying the balks before it like battering rams, cracked and split the bridges of solid stone which the ancients had built. These and the iron bridges likewise were overthrown, and presently quite disappeared, for the very foundations were covered with the sand and gravel silted up. Thus, too, the sites of many villages and towns that anciently existed along the rivers, or on the lower lands adjoining, were concealed by the water and the mud it brought with it. The sedges and reeds that arose completed the work, and left nothing visible, so that the mighty buildings of olden days were by these means utterly buried. And, as has been proved by those who have dug for treasures, in our time the very foundations are deep beneath the earth, and not to be got at for the water that oozes into the shafts that they have tried to sink through the sand and mud-banks. From an elevation, therefore, there was nothing visible but endless forest and marsh. On the level ground and plains the view was limited to a short distance, because of the thickets and the saplings which had now become young trees. The downs only were still partially open, yet it was not convenient to walk upon them except in the tracks of animals, because of the long grass, which, being no more regularly grazed upon by sheep, as was once the case, grew thick and tangled. Firs, too, and heath covered the slopes, and in places vast quantities of fern. There had always been copses of fir and beech and nut-tree covers, and these increased and spread, while bramble, briar, and hawthorn extended around them. By degrees the trees of the vale seemed, as it were, to invade and march up the hills, and as we see in our time, in many places the downs are hidden altogether with a stunted kind of forest. But all the above happened in the time of the first generation. Besides these things, a great physical change took place. But before I speak of that, it will be best to relate what effects were produced upon animals and men. In the first years after the fields were left to themselves, the fallen and overripe corn crops became the resort of innumerable mice. They swarmed to an incredible degree, not only devouring the grain upon the straw that had never been cut, but clearing out every single ear in the wheat ricks that were standing about the country. 
nothing remained in these ricks but straw, pierced with tunnels and runs, the home and breeding-place of mice, which thence poured forth into the fields. Such grain as had been left in barns and granaries, in mills and in warehouses of the deserted towns, disappeared in the same manner. When men tried to raise crops in small gardens and enclosures for their sustenance, these legions of mice rushed in and destroyed the produce of their labour. Nothing could keep them out, and if a score were killed, a hundred more supplied their place. These mice were preyed upon by kestrel hawks, owls and weasels, but at first they made little or no appreciable difference. In a few years, however, the weasels, having such a superabundance of food, trebled in numbers, and in the same way the hawks, owls, and foxes increased. There was then some relief, but even now at intervals districts are invaded, and the granaries and the standing corn suffer from these depredations. This does not happen every year, but only at intervals, for it is noticed that mice abound very much more in some seasons than others. The extraordinary multiplication of these creatures was the means of providing food for the cats that had been abandoned in the towns, and came forth into the country in droves. Feeding on the mice, they became, in a very short time, quite wild, and their descendants now roam the forest. In our houses, we still have several varieties of the domestic cat, such as the tortoise-shell, which is the most prized. But when the above-mentioned cats became wild, after a while the several varieties disappeared, and left but one wild kind. Those which are now so often seen in the forest, and which do so much mischief about houses and enclosures, are almost all greyish, some being striped and they are also much longer in the body than the tame. A few are jet black. Their skins are then preferred by hunters. Though the forest cat retires from the sight of man as much as possible, yet it is extremely fierce in defence of its young, and instances have been known where travellers in the woods have been attacked upon unwittingly approaching their dens, Dropping from the boughs of a tree upon the shoulders, the creature flies at the face, inflicting deep scratches and bites, exceedingly painful, and sometimes dangerous, from the tendency to fester. But such cases are rare, and the reason the forest cat is so detested is because it preys upon fowls and poultry, mounting with ease the trees or places where they roost. Almost worse than the mice were the rats, which came out of the old cities in such vast numbers that the people who survived and saw them are related to have fled in fear. This terror, however, did not last so long as the evil of the mice, for the rats, probably not finding sufficient food when together, scattered abroad, and were destroyed singly by the cats and dogs, who slew them by thousands, far more than they could afterwards eat so that the carcasses were left to decay. It is said that, overcome with hunger, these armies of rats in some cases fell upon each other, 
and fed on their own kindred. They are still numerous, but do not appear to do the same amount of damage as is occasionally caused by the mice when the latter invade the cultivated lands. The dogs, of course, like the cats, were forced by starvation into the fields, where they perished in incredible numbers. Of many species of dogs, which are stated to have been plentiful among the ancients, we now have nothing but the name. The poodle is extinct, the Maltese terrier, the Pomeranian, the Italian greyhound, and it is believed great numbers of crosses and mongrels have utterly disappeared. There was none to feed them, and they could not find food for themselves, nor could they stand the rigour of the winter when exposed to the frost in the open air. Some kinds, more hardy and fitted by nature for the chase, became wild, and their descendants are now found in the woods. Of these there are three sorts which keep apart from each other, and are thought not to interbreed. The most numerous are the black. The black wood-dog is short and stoutly made, with shaggy hair, sometimes marked with white patches. There can be no doubt that it is the descendant of the ancient sheep-dog, for it is known that the sheep-dog was of that character. And it is said that those who used to keep sheep soon found their dogs abandon the fold and join the wild troops that fell upon the sheep. The black wood-dogs hunt in packs of ten or more, as many as forty have been counted, and are the pest of the farmer, for unless his flocks are protected at night, within stockades or enclosures, they are certain to be attacked. Not satisfied with killing enough to satisfy hunger, these dogs tear and mangle for sheer delight of blood, and will destroy twenty times as many as they can eat leaving the miserably torn carcasses on the field. Nor are the sheep always safe by day, if the wood-dogs happen to be hungry. The shepherd is therefore usually accompanied by two or three mastiffs, of whose great size and strength the others stand in awe. At night, and when in large packs, starving in the snow, not even the mastiffs can check them. No wood-dog of any kind has ever been known to attack man, and the hunter in the forest hears their bark in every direction without fear. It is, nevertheless, best to retire out of their way when charging sheep in packs, for they then seem seized with a blind fury, and some who have endeavoured to fight them have been thrown down and seriously mauled. But this has been in the blindness of their rush, no instance has ever been known of their purposely attacking man. These black wood-dogs will also chase and finally pull down cattle, if they can get within the enclosures, and even horses have fallen victims to their untiring thirst for blood. Not even the wild cattle can always escape, despite their strength, and they have been known to run down stags, though not their usual quarry. The next kind of wild wood-dog is the yellow, a smaller animal, with smooth hair inclining to a yellow colour, which lives principally upon game, chasing all from the hare to the stag. 
It is as swift, or nearly as swift, as the greyhound, and possesses greater endurance. In coursing the hare, it not uncommonly happens that these dogs start from the break and take the hare, when nearly exhausted, from the hunter's hounds. They will, in the same way, follow a stag, which has been almost run down by the hunters, and bring him to bay, though in this case they lose their booty, dispersing through fear of man when the hunters come up in a body. But such is their love of the chase, that they are known to assemble from their lairs at the distant sound of the horn, and as the hunters ride through the woods they often see the yellow dogs flitting along side by side with them, through bush and fern. These animals sometimes hunt singly, sometimes in couples, and as the season advances and winter approaches, in packs of eight or twelve. They never attack sheep or cattle, and avoid man, except when they perceive he is engaged in the chase. There is little doubt that they are the descendants of the dogs which the ancients called lurchers, crossed perhaps with the greyhound and possibly other breeds. When the various species of dogs were thrown on their own resources, those only withstood the exposure and hardships which were naturally hardy, and possessed natural aptitude for the chase. The third species of wood-dog is the white. They are low on the legs, of a dingy white colour, and much smaller than the other two. They neither attack cattle nor game, though fond of hunting rabbits. This dog is, in fact, a scavenger, living upon the carcasses of dead sheep and animals which are found picked clean in the night. For this purpose it haunts the neighbourhood of habitations, and prowls in the evening over heaps of refuse, scampering away at the least alarm, for it is extremely timid. It is perfectly harmless, for even the poultry do not dread it, and it will not face a tame cat, if by chance the two meet. It is rarely met with far from habitations, though it will accompany an army on the march. It may be said to remain in one district. The black and yellow dogs, on the contrary, roam about the forest without apparent home. One day the hunter sees signs of their presence, and perhaps may, for a month afterwards, not so much as hear a bark. This uncertainty in the case of the black dog is the bane of the shepherds for not seeing or hearing anything of the enemy for months altogether. In spite of former experience, their vigilance relaxes, and suddenly, while they sleep, their flocks are scattered. We still have, among tame dogs, the mastiff, terrier, spaniel, deerhound and greyhound, all of which are as faithful to man as ever. End of chapter 1《Part 1 Chapter 2 of After London This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. After London or Wild England by Richard Jefferies. Part 1 The Relapse into Barbarism. Chapter 2 Wild Animals. When the ancients departed, great numbers of their cattle perished. 
it was not so much the want of food as the inability to endure exposure that caused their death. A few winters are related to have so reduced them that they died by hundreds, many mangled by dogs. The hardiest that remained became perfectly wild, and the wood-cattle are now more difficult to approach than deer. There are two kinds, the white and the black. The white, sometimes done, are believed to be the survivors of the domestic roan and white, for the cattle in our enclosures at the present day are of that colour. The black are smaller, and are doubtless little changed from their state in the olden times, except that they are wild. These latter are timid, unless accompanied by a calf, and are rarely known to turn upon their pursuers. But the white are fierce at all times. They will not indeed attack man, but will scarcely run from him, and it is not always safe to cross their haunts. The bulls are savage beyond measure at certain seasons of the year. If they see men at a distance, they retire. If they come unexpectedly face to face, they attack. This characteristic enables those who travel through districts known to be haunted by white cattle to provide against an encounter, for by occasionally blowing a horn, the herd that may be in the vicinity is dispersed. There are not often more than twenty in a herd. The hides of the dun are highly prized, both for their intrinsic value and as proofs of skill and courage, so much so that you shall hardly buy a skin for all the money you may offer, and the horns are likewise trophies. The white or dun bull is the monarch of our forests. Four kinds of wild pigs are found. The most numerous, or at least the most often seen, as it lies about our enclosures, is the common thorn-hog. It is the largest of the wild pigs, long-bodied and flat-sided, in colour much the hue of the mud in which it wallows. To the agriculturist it is the greatest pest, destroying or damaging all kinds of crops, and rooting up the gardens. It is with difficulty kept out by palisading, for if there be a weak place in the wooden framework, the strong snout of the animal is sure to undermine and work a passage through. As there are always so many of these pigs round about inhabited places and cultivated fields, constant care is required, for they instantly discover an opening. From their habit of haunting the thickets and bush which come up to the verge of the enclosures, they have obtained the name of thorn-hogs. Some reach an immense size, and they are very prolific, so that it is impossible to destroy them. The boars are fierce at a particular season, but never attack unless provoked to do so. But when driven to bay, they are the most dangerous of the boars, on account of their vast size and weight. They are of a sluggish disposition, and will not rise from their lairs unless forced to do so. The next kind is the white hog, which has much the same habits as the former, except that it is usually found in moist places, near lakes and rivers, and is often called the marsh pig. The third kind is perfectly black, much smaller in size, and very active, 
affording by far the best sport, and also the best food when killed. As they are found on the hills, where the ground is somewhat more open, horses can follow freely, and the chase becomes exciting. By some it is called the hill-hog, from the locality it frequents. The small tusks of the black boar are used for many ornamental purposes. These three species are considered to be the descendants of the various domestic pigs of the ancients, but the fourth, or grey, is thought to be the true wild boar. It is seldom seen, but is most common in the southwestern forests, where, from the quantity of fern, it is called the fern pig. This kind is believed to represent the true wild boar, which was extinct, or merged in the domestic hog among the ancients, except in that neighbourhood where the strain remained. With wild times the wild habits have returned, and the grey boar is at once the most difficult of access, and the most ready to encounter either dogs or men. Although the first, or thorn-hog, does the most damage to the agriculturist because of its numbers, and its habit of haunting the neighbourhood of enclosures, the others are equally injurious if they chance to enter the cultivated fields. The three principal kinds of wild sheep are the horned, the thyme, and the meadow. The thyme sheep are the smallest, and haunt the highest hills in the south, where, feeding on the sweet herbage of the ridges, their flesh is said to acquire a flavour of wild thyme. They move in small flocks of not more than thirty, and are the most difficult to approach, being far more wary than deer. So continuously are they hunted by the wood-dogs. The horned are larger, and move in greater numbers, as many as two hundred are sometimes seen together. They are found on the lower slopes and plains, and in the woods. The meadow-sheep have long shaggy wool, which is made into various articles of clothing, but they are not numerous. They haunt river-sides, and the shores of lakes and ponds. None of these are easily got at on account of the wood-dogs, but the rams of the horned kind are reputed to sometimes turn upon the pursuing pack and butt them to death. In the extremity of their terror whole flocks of wild sheep have been driven over precipices and into quagmires and torrents. Besides these there are several other species whose haunt is local. On the islands especially different kinds are found. The wood-dogs will occasionally, in calm weather, swim out to an island, and kill every sheep upon it. From the horses that were in use among the ancients, the two wild species now found are known to have descended, a fact confirmed by their evident resemblance to the horses we still retain. The largest wild horse is almost black, or inclined to a dark colour, somewhat less in size than our present wagon-horses, but of the same heavy make. It is, however, much swifter, on account of having enjoyed liberty for so long. It is called the bush-horse, being generally distributed among thickets and meadow-like lands adjoining water. The other species is called the hill-pony, from its habitat, the hills, and is rather less in size than our riding-horse. 
this latter is short and thick-set, so much so as not to be easily ridden by short persons without high stirrups. Neither of these wild horses are numerous, but neither are they uncommon. They keep entirely separate from each other. As many as thirty mares are sometimes seen together, but there are districts where the traveller will not observe one for weeks. Tradition says that in the olden times there were horses of a slender build, whose speed outstripped the wind, but of the breed of these famous racers not one is left. Whether they were too delicate to withstand exposure, or whether the wild dogs hunted them down is uncertain, but they are quite gone. Did but one exist, how eagerly it would be sought out! for in these days it would be worth its weight in gold, unless, indeed, as some affirm, such speed only endured for a mile or two. It is not necessary, having written thus far of the animals, that anything be said of the birds of the woods, which every one knows were not always wild, and which can, indeed, be compared with such poultry as are kept in our enclosures. Such are the bush-hens, the wood-turkeys, the gallany, the peacocks, the white duck and the white goose, all of which, though now wild as the hawk, are well known to have been once tame. There were deer, red and fallow, in numerous parks and chases of very old time, and these, having got loose and having such immense tracts to roam over unmolested, went on increasing, till now they are beyond computation, and I have myself seen a thousand head together. Within these forty years, as I learn, the roe-deer too have come down from the extreme north, so that there are now three sorts in the woods. Before them the pine-martin came from the same direction, and though they are not yet common, it is believed they are increasing. For the first few years after the change took place, there seemed a danger lest the foreign wild beasts that had been confined as curiosities in menageries should multiply and remain in the woods, but this did not happen. Some few lions, tigers, bears, and other animals did indeed escape, together with many less furious creatures, and it is related that they roamed about the fields for a long time. They were seldom met with, having such an extent of country to wander over, and after a while entirely disappeared. If any progeny were born, the winter frosts must have destroyed it, and the same fate awaited the monstrous serpents which had been collected for exhibition. Only one such animal now exists which is known to owe its origin to those which escaped from the dens of the ancients. It is the beaver, whose dams are now occasionally found upon the streams by those who traverse the woods. Some of the aquatic birds, too, which frequent the lakes, are thought to have been originally derived from those which were formerly kept as curiosities. In the castle-yard at Longtover may still be seen the bones of an elephant, which was found dying in the woods near that spot. End of chapter 2
Part One, Chapter Three of After London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. After London or Wild England by Richard Jefferies. Part One: The Relapse into Barbarism. Chapter Three: Men of the Woods. So far as this, all that I have stated has been clear and there can be no doubt that what has been thus handed down from mouth to mouth is for the most part correct. When I pass from trees and animals to men, however, the thing is different, for nothing is certain and everything confused. None of the accounts agree, nor can they be altogether reconciled with present facts or with reasonable supposition. Yet it is not so long since, but a few memories added one to the other can bridge the time, and though not many, there are some written notes still to be found. I must attribute the discrepancy to the wars and hatreds which sprang up and divided the people, so that one would not listen to what the others wished to say, and the truth was lost. Besides which, in the conflagration which consumed the towns, most of the records were destroyed, and are no longer to be referred to. And it may be that even when they were proceeding, the causes of the change were not understood. Therefore, what I am now about to describe is not to be regarded as the ultimate truth, but as the nearest to which I could attain after comparing the various traditions. Some say, then, that the first beginning of the change was because the sea silted up the entrances to the ancient ports, and stopped the vast commerce which was once carried on. It is certainly true that many of the ports are silted up, and are now useless as such. But whether the silting up preceded the disappearance of the population, or whether the disappearance of the population and the consequent neglect caused the silting, I cannot venture to positively assert. For there are signs that the level of the sea has sunk in some places, and signs that it has become higher in others, so that the judicious historian will simply state the facts, and refrain from colouring them with his own theory, as Sylvester has done. Others again maintain that the supply of food from over the ocean suddenly stopping caused great disorders, and that the people crowded on board all the ships to escape starvation, and sailed away, and were no more heard of. It has, too, been said that the earth, from some attractive power exercised by the passage of an enormous dark body through space, became tilted or inclined to its orbit more than before, and that this, while it lasted, altered the flow of the magnetic currents, which, in an imperceptible manner, influenced the minds of men. Hitherto the stream of human life had directed itself to the westward, but when this reversal of magnetism occurred, a general desire arose to return to the east and those whose business is theology have pointed out that the wickedness of those times surpassed understanding, and that a change and sweeping away of the human evil that had accumulated was necessary, and was effected by supernatural means. 
the relation of this must be left to them, since it is not the province of the philosopher to meddle with such matters. All that seems certain is that when the event took place, the immense crowds collected in cities were most affected, and that the richer and upper classes made use of their money to escape. Those left behind were mainly the lower and most ignorant, as far as the arts were concerned. Those that dwelt in distant and outlying places, and those who lived by agriculture. These last, at that date, had fallen to such distress that they could not hire vessels to transport themselves. The exact number of those left behind cannot, of course, be told, but it is on record that when the fields were first neglected, as I have already described, a man might ride a hundred miles and not meet another. They were not only few, but scattered, and had not drawn together and formed towns, as at present. Of what became of the vast multitudes that left the country, nothing has ever been heard, and no communication has been received from them. For this reason I cannot conceal my opinion that they must have sailed either to the westward or to the southward, where the greatest extent of ocean is understood to exist and not to the eastward, as Sylvester would have it, in his work upon the unknown orb, the dark body travelling in space, to which I have alluded. None of our vessels in the present day dare venture into those immense tracts of sea, nor indeed out of sight of land, unless they know they shall see it again, so soon as they have reached and surmounted the ridge of the horizon. Had they only crossed to the mainland or continent again, we should most likely have heard of their passage across the countries there. It is true that ships rarely come over, and only to two ports, and that the men on them say, so far as can be understood, that their country is equally deserted now, and has likewise lost its population. But still, as men talk unto men, and we pass intelligence across great breadths of land, it is almost certain that, had they travelled that way, some echo of their footsteps would yet sound back to us. Regarding this theory, therefore, as untenable, I put forward as a suggestion that the ancients really sailed to the west or to the south. As for the most part those who were left behind were ignorant, rude, and unlettered, it consequently happened that many of the marvellous things which the ancients did, and the secrets of their science, are known to us by name only, and indeed hardly by name. It has happened to us in our turn as it happened to the ancients, for they were aware that in times before their own the art of making glass malleable had been discovered, so that it could be beaten into shape like copper. But the manner in which it was accomplished was entirely unknown to them. The fact was on record, but the cause lost. So, now we know that those who to us are the ancients had a way of making diamonds and precious stones out of black and lustreless charcoal a fact which approaches the incredible. Still, we do not doubt it. 
though we cannot imagine by what means it was carried out. They also sent intelligence to the utmost parts of the earth, along wires, which were not tubular but solid, and therefore could not transmit sound, and yet the person who received the message could hear and recognise the voice of the sender a thousand miles away. With certain machines worked by fire, they traversed the land swift as the swallow glides through the sky, but of these things not a relic remains to us. What metal-work or wheels or bars of iron were left, and might have given us a clue, were all broken up and melted down for use in other ways when metal became scarce. Mounds of earth are said to still exist in the woods, which originally formed the roads for these machines, but they are now so low and so covered with thickets that nothing can be learned from them. And indeed, though I have heard of their existence, I have never seen one. Great holes were made through the very hills for the passage of the iron chariot, but they are now blocked by the falling roofs, nor dare any one explore such parts as may yet be open. Where are the wonderful structures with which the men of those days were lifted to the skies, rising above the clouds? These marvellous things are to us little more than fables of the giants and of the old gods that walked upon the earth, which were fables even to those whom we call the ancients. Indeed, we have fuller knowledge of those extremely ancient times than of the people who immediately preceded us, and the Romans and the Greeks are more familiar to us than the men who rode in the iron chariots and mounted to the skies. The reason why so many arts and sciences were lost was because, as I have previously said, the most of those who were left in the country were ignorant, rude, and unlettered. They had seen the iron chariots, but did not understand the method of their construction, and could not hand down the knowledge they did not themselves possess. The magic wires of intelligence passed through their villages, but they did not know how to work them. The cunning artificers of the cities all departed, and everything fell quickly into barbarism. Nor could it be wondered at, for the few and scattered people of those days had enough to do to preserve their lives. Communication between one place and another was absolutely cut off, and if one perchance did recollect something that might have been of use, he could not confer with another who knew the other part, and thus between them reconstruct the machine. In the second generation even these disjointed memories died out. At first it is supposed that those who remained behind existed upon the grain in the warehouses, and what they could thresh by the flail from the crops left neglected in the fields. But as the provisions in the warehouses were consumed or spoiled, they hunted the animals, lately tame and as yet but half wild. As these grew less in number and difficult to overtake, they set to work again to till the ground, and cleared away small portions of the earth, 
encumbered already with brambles and thistles. Some grew corn, and some took charge of sheep. Thus, in time, places far apart from each other were settled, and towns were built. Towns, indeed, we call them to distinguish them from the champaign, but they are not worthy of the name in comparison with the mighty cities of old time. There are many that have not more than fifty houses in the enclosure, and perhaps no other station within a day's journey, and the largest are but villages, reckoning by antiquity. For the most part they have their own government, or had till recently, and thus there grew up many provinces and kingdoms in the compass of what was originally but one. Thus separated and divided, there came also to be many races, where in the first place was one people. Now, in briefly recounting the principal divisions of men, I will commence with those who are everywhere considered the lowest. These are the Bushmen, who live wholly in the woods. Even among the ancients, when every man, woman, and child could exercise those arts which are now the special mark of nobility, i.e. reading and writing, there was a degraded class of persons who refused to avail themselves of the benefits of civilization. They obtained their food by begging, wandering along the highways, crouching around fires which they lit in the open, clad in rags, and exhibiting countenances from which every trace of self-respect had disappeared. These were the ancestors of the present men of the bushes. They took naturally to the neglected fields, and forming camps, as they call their tribes, or rather families, wandered to and fro, easily subsisting upon roots and trapped game. So they live to this day, having become extremely dexterous in snaring every species of bird and animal, and the fishes of the streams. These latter they sometimes poison with a drug or a plant, it is not known which, the knowledge of which has been preserved among them since the days of the ancients. The poison kills the fishes and brings them to the surface, when they can be collected by hundreds, but does not injure them for eating. Like the black wood-dogs, the bushmen, often in fits of savage frenzy, destroy thrice as much as they can devour, trapping deer in wicker-work hedges or pitfalls, and cutting the miserable animals in pieces for mere thirst of blood. The oxen and cattle in the enclosures are occasionally in the same manner fearfully mutilated by these wretches, sometimes for amusement and sometimes in vengeance for injuries done to them. Bushmen have no settled home, cultivate no kind of corn or vegetable, keep no animals, not even dogs, have no houses or huts, no boats or canoes, nothing that requires the least intelligence or energy to construct. Roaming to and fro, without any apparent aim or object, or any particular route, they fix their camp for a few days wherever it suits their fancy, and again move on, no man knows why or whither. It is this uncertainty of movement which makes them so dangerous. Today there may not be the least sign of any within miles of an enclosure. 
in the night a camp may pass, slaughtering such cattle as may have remained without the palisade, or killing the unfortunate shepherd who has not got within the walls, and in the morning they may be nowhere to be seen, having disappeared like vermin. Face to face the bushman is never to be feared. A whole camp or tribal family will scatter if a traveller stumbles into their midst. It is from behind a tree or under cover of night that he deals his murderous blow. A camp may consist of ten or twenty individuals, sometimes perhaps of forty or even fifty, of various ages, and is ruled by the eldest, who is also the parent. He is absolute master of his camp, but has no power or recognition beyond it, so that how many leaders there may be among them it is not possible even to guess. Nor is the master known to them as king or duke, nor has he any title, but is simply the oldest or founder of the family. The camp has no law, no established custom. Events happen, and even the master cannot be said to reign. When he becomes feeble, they simply leave him to die. They are depraved, and without shame, clad in sheepskins chiefly, if clad at all, or in such clothes as they have stolen. They have no ceremonies whatever. The number of these camps must be considerable, and yet the bushman is seldom seen, nor do we very often hear of their depredations, which is accounted for by the extent of country they wander over. It is in severe winters that the chief danger occurs. They then suffer from hunger and cold, and are driven to the neighbourhood of the enclosures to steal. So dexterous are they in slipping through the bushes, and slinking among the reeds and osiers, that they will pass within a few yards without discovering their presence, and the signs of their passage can be detected only by the experienced hunter, and not always by him. It is observed that whatever mischief the bushman commits, he never sets fire to any ricks or buildings. The reason is because his nature is to slink from the scene of his depredations, and flame at once attracts people to the spot. Twice the occurrence of a remarkably severe winter has caused the bushmen to flock together, and act in an approach to concert in attacking the enclosures. The bushmen of the north, who were even more savage and brutal, then came down, and were with difficulty repulsed from the walled cities. In ordinary times we see very little of them. They are the thieves, the human vermin of the woods. Under the name of gypsies, those who are now often called Romany and Zingari were well known to the ancients. Indeed, they boast that their ancestry goes back so much farther than the oldest we can claim, that the ancients themselves were but modern to them. Even in that age of highest civilization, which immediately preceded the present, they say, and there is no doubt of it, that they preserved the blood of their race pure and untainted, that they never dwelt under permanent roofs, nor bowed their knees to the prevalent religion. They remained apart, 
and still continue after civilization has disappeared exactly the same as they were before it commenced. Since the change their numbers have greatly increased, and were they not always at war with each other, it is possible that they might go far to sweep the house-people from the land. But there are so many tribes, each with its king, queen, or duke, that their power is divided, and their force melts away. The ruler of the Bushman families is always a man, but among the gypsies a woman and even a young girl often exercises supreme authority, but must be of the sacred blood. These kings and dukes are absolute autocrats within their tribe, and can order by a nod the destruction of those who offend them. Habits of simplest obedience being enjoined on the tribe from earliest childhood, such executions are rare, but the right to command them is not for a moment questioned. Of the sorcerers, and particularly the sorceresses among them, all have heard, and, indeed, the places where they dwell seem full of mystery and magic. They live in tents, and though they constantly remove from district to district, one tribe never clashes with or crosses another, because all have their especial roots, upon which no intrusion is ever made. Some agriculture is practised, and flocks and herds are kept, but the work is entirely done by the women. The men are always on horseback, or sleeping in their tents. Each tribe has its central camping-place, to which they return at intervals, after perhaps wandering for months, a certain number of persons being left at home to defend it. These camps are often situated in inaccessible positions, and well protected by stockades. The territory which is acknowledged to belong to such a camp is extremely limited. Its mere environs only are considered the actual property of the tribe, and a second can pitch its tents with a few hundred yards. These stockades, in fact, are more like storehouses than residences. Each is a mere rendezvous. The gypsies are everywhere, but their stockades are most numerous in the south, along the sides of the green hills and plains, and especially round Stonehenge, where, on the great open plains, among the huge boulders placed ages since in circles, they perform strange ceremonies and incantations. They attack every traveller, and every caravan or train of wagons which they feel strong enough to master. But they do not murder the solitary sleeping hunter or shepherd like the bushman. They will indeed steal from him, but do not kill, except in fight. Once, now and then, they have found their way into towns, when terrible massacres have followed, for, when excited, the savage knows not how to restrain himself. Vengeance is their idol. If any community has injured or affronted them, they never cease endeavouring to retaliate, and will wipe it out in fire and blood generations afterwards. There are towns which have thus been suddenly harried, when the citizens had forgotten that any cause of enmity existed. Vengeance is their religion and their social law, 
which guides all their actions among themselves. It is for this reason that they are continually at war, duke with duke and king with king. A deadly feud, too, has set Bushman and Gypsy at each other's throat, far beyond the memory of man. The Romany looks on the Bushman as a dog, and slaughters him as such. In turn, the despised human dog slinks in the darkness of the night into the Romany's tent, and stabs his daughter or his wife, for such is the meanness and cowardice of the Bushman that he would always rather kill a woman than a man. There is also a third class of men, who are not true gypsies, but have something of their character, though the gypsies will not allow that they were originally half-breeds. Their habits are much the same, except that they are footmen and rarely use horses, and are therefore called the foot-gypsies. The gypsy horse is really a pony. Once only have the Romany combined to attack the house-people, driven like the bushmen by an exceedingly severe winter, against which they had no provision. But then, instead of massing their forces, and throwing their irresistible numbers upon one city or territory, all they would agree to do was that, upon a certain day, each tribe should invade the land nearest to it. The result was that they were, though with trouble, repulsed. Until lately no leader ventured to follow the gypsies to their strongholds, for they were reputed invincible behind their stockades. By infesting the woods and lying in ambush, they rendered communication between city and city difficult and dangerous, except to bodies of armed men, and every wagon had to be defended by troops. The gypsies, as they roam, make little secret of their presence, unless, of course, intent upon mischief, but light their fires by day and night fearlessly. The bushmen never light a fire by day, lest the ascending smoke which cannot be concealed, should betray their whereabouts. Their fires are lit at night, in hollows or places well surrounded with thickets, and, that the flame may not be seen, they will build screens of fir-boughs or fern. When they have obtained a good supply of hot wood-coals, no more sticks are thrown on, but these are covered with turf, and thus kept in long enough for their purposes. Much of their meat they devour raw, and thus do not need a fire so frequently as others. End of chapter 3 Part 1, Chapter 4 of After London This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding After London, or Wild England, by Richard Jefferies Part One, The Relapse into Barbarism, Chapter Four, The Invaders. Those who live by agriculture or in towns, and are descended from the remnant of the ancients, are divided, as I have previously said, into numerous provinces, kingdoms, and republics. In the middle part of the country, the cities are almost all upon the shores of the lake or within a short distance of the water, and there is therefore more traffic and communication between them 
by means of vessels than is the case with inland towns, whose trade must be carried on by caravans and wagons. These not only move slowly, but are subject to be interrupted by the Romani and by the banditi, or persons who, for moral or political crimes, have been banished from their homes. It is in the cities that cluster around the great central lake that all the life and civilization of our day are found. But there also begin those wars and social convulsions which cause so much suffering. When was the peninsula at peace? And when was there not some mischief and change brewing in the republics? When was there not a danger from the northern mainland? Until recent years there was little knowledge of, and scarcely any direct commerce or intercourse between the central part and the districts either of the extreme west or the north, and it is only now that the north and east are becoming open to us. For at the back of the narrow circle of cultivated land, the belt about the lake, there extend immense forests in every direction, through which, till very lately, no practicable way had been cut. Even in the more civilised central part, it is not to this day easy to travel, for at the barriers, as you approach the territories of every prince, they demand your business and your papers, nor, even if you establish the fact that you are innocent of designs against the state, shall you hardly enter without satisfying the greed of the officials. A fine is thus exacted at the gate of every province and kingdom, and again at the gateways of the towns. The difference of the coinage, such as it is, causes also great loss and trouble. For the money of one kingdom, though passing current by command in that territory, is not received at its nominal value in the next, on account of the alloy it contains. It is, indeed, in many kingdoms impossible to obtain sterling money. Gold there is little or none anywhere, but silver is the standard of exchange, and copper, bronze and brass, sometimes tin, are the metals with which the greater number of the people transact their business. Justice is corrupt, for where there is a king or a prince, it depends on the caprice of a tyrant, and where there is a republic, upon the shout of the crowd, so that many, if they think they may be put on trial, rather than face the risk, at once escape into the woods. The League, though based ostensibly on principles the most exalted and beneficial to humanity, is known to be perverted. The members, sworn to honour and the highest virtue, are swayed by vile motives, political hatreds, and private passions, and even by money. Men for ever trample upon men, each pushing to the front. Nor is there safety in remaining in retirement, since such are accused of biding their time and of occult designs. Though the population of these cities all counted together is not equal to the population that once dwelt in a single second-rate city of the ancients, yet how much greater are the bitterness and the struggle! Yet not content with the bloodshed they themselves cause, 
the tyrants have called in the aid of mercenary soldiers to assist them. And to complete the disgrace, those republics which proclaim themselves the very home of patriotic virtues have resorted to the same means. Thus we see English cities kept in awe by troops of Welshmen, Irish, or even the Western Scots, who swarm in the council chambers of the republics, and, opening the doors of the houses, help themselves to what they will. This, too, in the face of the notorious fact that these nations have sworn to be avenged upon us, that their vessels sail about the lake committing direful acts of piracy, and that twice already vast armies have swept along, threatening to entirely overwhelm the whole commonwealth. What infatuation to admit bands of these same men into the very strongholds and the heart of the land, as if upon the approach of their countrymen they would remain true to the oaths they have sworn for pay, and not rather admit them with open arms. No blame can, upon a just consideration, be attributed to either of these nations that endeavour to oppress us. For, as they point out, the ancients from whom we are descended held them in subjection many hundred years, and took from them all their liberties. Thus the Welsh, or as they call themselves the Cymry, say that the whole island was once theirs and is theirs still by right of inheritance. They were the original people who possessed it ages before the arrival of those whom we call the ancients. Though they were driven into the mountains of the far distant west, they never forgot their language, ceased their customs, or gave up their aspirations to recover their own. This is now their aim, and until recently it seemed as if they were about to accomplish it. For they held all that country anciently called Cornwall, having crossed over the Severn and marched down the southern shore. The rich land of Devon, part of Dorset, all indeed that is inhabited, and the most part of Somerset, acknowledged their rule. Worcester and Hereford and Gloucester were theirs. I mean, of course, those parts that are not forest. Their outposts were pushed forward to the centre of Leicestershire, and came down towards Oxford. But thereabouts they met with the forces of which I will shortly speak. Then their vessels, every summer sailing from the Severn, came into the lake, and, landing wherever there was an opportunity, they destroyed all things and carried off the spoil. Is it necessary to say more to demonstrate the madness which possesses those princes and republics which, in order to support their own tyranny, have invited bands of these men into their very palaces and forts? As they approached near what was once Oxford, and is now Sipolis, the armies of the Cymry came into collision with another of our invaders, and thus their forward course to the south was checked. The Irish, who had hitherto abetted them, turned round to defend their own usurpations. They, too, say that in conquering and despoiling my countrymen they are fulfilling a divine vengeance. 
their land of Ireland, had been for centuries ground down with an iron tyranny by our ancestors, who closed their lips with a muzzle, and led them about with a bridle, as their poets say. But now the hateful Saxons, for thus both they and the Welsh designate us, are broken, and delivered over to them for their spoil. It is not possible to deny many of the statements that they make, but that should not prevent us from battling with might and main against the threatened subjection. What crime can be greater than the admission of such foreigners as the guards of our cities? Now the Irish have their principal rendezvous and capital near to the ancient city of Chester, which is upon the ocean and at the very top and angle of Wales. This is their great settlement, their magazine and rallying place, and thence their expeditions have proceeded. It is a convenient port, and well opposite their native land, from which reinforcements continually arrive, but the Welsh have ever looked upon their possession of it with jealousy. At the period when the Cymry had nearly penetrated to Sypolis or Oxford, the Irish, on their part, had overrun all the cultivated and inhabited country in a south and south-easterly line from Chester, through Rutland to Norfolk and Suffolk, and even as far as Luton. They would have spread to the north, but in that direction they were met by the Scots, who had all Northumbria. When the Welsh came near Sypolis, the Irish awoke to the position of affairs. Sypolis is the largest and most important city upon the northern shore of the lake, and it is situated at the entrance to the neck of land that stretches out to the straits. If the Welsh were once well posted there, the Irish could never hope to find their way to the rich and cultivated south, for it is just below Sypolis that the lake contracts, and forms a strait in one place but a furlong wide. The two forces thus came into collision, and while they fought and destroyed each other, Sypolis was saved. After which, finding they were evenly matched, the Irish withdrew two days' march northwards, and the Cymry as far westwards. But now the Irish, sailing round the outside of Wales, came likewise up through the red rocks, and so into the lake, and in their turn landing harassed the cities. Often Welsh and Irish vessels, intending to attack the same place, have discerned each other approaching, and turning from their proposed action have flown at each other's throats. The Scots have not harassed us in the south much, being too far distant, and those that wander hither come for pay, taking service as guards. They are indeed the finest of men, and the hardiest to battle with. I had forgotten to mention that it is possible the Irish might have pushed back the Welsh, had not the kingdom of York suddenly reviving, by means which shall be related, valiantly thrust out its masters, and fell upon their rear. But still these nations are always upon the verge and margin of our world, and wait but an opportunity to rush in upon it. Our countrymen groan under their yoke, 
and I say again that infamy should be the portion of those rulers among us who have filled their fortified places with mercenaries derived from such sources. The land, too, is weak, because of the multitude of bondsmen. In the provinces and kingdoms round about the lake there is hardly a town where the slaves do not outnumber the free as ten to one. The laws are framed for the object of reducing the greater part of the people to servitude. For every offence the punishment is slavery, and the offences are daily artificially increased, that the wealth of the few in human beings may grow with them. If a man in his hunger steal a loaf, he becomes a slave. That is, it is proclaimed he must make good to the state the injury he has done it, and must work out his trespass. This is not assessed as the value of the loaf, nor supposed to be confined to the individual from whom it was taken. The theft is said to damage the state at large, because it corrupts the morality of the commonwealth. It is as if the thief had stolen a loaf not from one, but from every member of the state. Restitution must therefore be made to all, and the value of the loaf returned in labour a thousandfold. The thief is the bondsman of the state. But as the state cannot employ him, he is leased out to those who will pay into the treasury of the prince the money equivalent to the labour he is capable of performing. Thus, under cover of the highest morality, the greatest iniquity is perpetrated. For the theft of a loaf, the man is reduced to a slave. Then his wife and children, unable to support themselves, become a charge to the state, that is, they beg in the public ways. This, too, forsooth, corrupts morality, and they likewise are seized and leased out to any who like to take them. Nor can he or they ever become free again, for they must repay to their proprietor the sum he gave for them. And how can that be done, since they receive no wages? For striking another, a man may be, in the same way, as they term it, forfeited to the state, and be sold to the highest bidder. A stout brass wire is then twisted around his left wrist loosely, and the ends soldered together. Then a bar of iron being put through, a half-turn is given to it, which forces the wire sharply against the arm, causing it to fit tightly, often painfully, and forms a smaller ring at the outside. By this smaller ring, a score of bondsmen may be seen strung together with a rope. To speak disrespectfully of the prince or his council, or of the nobles, or of religion, to go out of the precincts without permission, to trade without license, to omit to salute the great, all these and a thousand others are crimes deserving of the brazen bracelet. Were a man to study all day what he must do and what he must not do to escape servitude, it would not be possible for him to stir one step without becoming forfeit. And yet they hypocritically say 
that these things are done for the sake of public morality, and that there are not slaves, not permitting the word to be used, and no man was ever sold. It is indeed true that no man is sold in open market, he is leased instead, and by a refined hypocrisy the owner of slaves cannot sell them to another owner, but he can place them in the hands of the notary, presenting them with their freedom so far as he is concerned. The notary, upon payment of a fine from the purchaser, transfers them to him, and the larger part of the fine goes to the prince. Debt alone, under their laws, must crowd the land with slaves, for, as wages are scarcely known, a child from its birth is often declared to be in debt, for its nourishment is drawn from its mother, and the wretched mother is the wife of a retainer who is fed by his lord. To such a degree is this tyranny carried. If any owe a penny, his doom is sealed, he becomes a bondsman, and thus the estates of the nobles are full of men who work during their whole lives for the profit of others. Thus, too, the woods are filled with banditti, for those who find an opportunity never fail to escape, notwithstanding the hunt that is invariably made for them, and the cruel punishment that awaits recapture. And numbers, foreseeing that they must become bondsmen, before they are proclaimed forfeit, steal away by night, and live as they may in the forests. How, then, does any man remain free? Only by the favour of the nobles, and only that he may amass wealth for them. The merchants, and those who have licence to trade by land or water, are all protected by some noble house, to whom they pay heavily for permission to live in their own houses. The principal tyrant is supported by the nobles, that they in their turn may tyrannise over the merchants, and they again over all the workmen of their shops and bazaars. Over their own servants, for thus they call the slaves, that the word itself may not be used, who work upon their estates, the nobles are absolute masters, and may even hang them upon the nearest tree. And here I cannot but remark how strange it is, first, that any man can remain a slave rather than die, and secondly, how much stranger it is that any other man, himself a slave, can be found to hunt down or to hang his fellow. Yet the tyrants never lack executioners. Their castles are crowded with retainers who wreak their wills upon the defenceless. These retainers do not wear the brazen bracelet. They are free. Are there, then, no beggars? Yes, they sit at every corner, and about the gates of the cities asking for alms. Though begging makes a man forfeit to the state, it is only when he has thews and sinews and can work. The diseased and aged the helpless and feeble, may break the law and starve by the roadside, because it profits no one to make them his slaves. 
and all these things are done in the name of morality, and for the good of the human race, as they constantly announce in their councils and parliaments. There are two reasons why the mercenaries have been called in. First, because the princes found the great nobles so powerful, and can keep them in check only by the aid of these foreigners, and secondly, because the number of the outlaws in the woods has become so great that the nobles themselves are afraid, lest their slaves should revolt, and with the aid of the outlaws overcome them. Now, the mark of a noble is that he can read and write. When the ancients were scattered, the remnant that was left behind was, for the most part, the ignorant and the poor. But among them there was here and there a man who possessed some little education and force of mind. At first there was no order, but after thirty years or so, after a generation, some order grew up, and these men, then become aged, were naturally chosen as leaders. They had, indeed, no actual power then, no guards or armies, but the common folk who had no knowledge came to them for decision of their disputes, for advice what to do, for the pronouncement of some form of marriage, for the keeping of some note of property, and to be united against a mutual danger. These men in turn taught their children to read and write, wishing that some part of the wisdom of the ancients might be preserved. They themselves wrote down what they knew, and these manuscripts, transmitted to their children, were saved with care. Some of them remain to this day. These children, growing to manhood, took more upon them, and assumed higher authority, as the past was forgotten, and the original equality of all men lost in antiquity. The small enclosed farms of their fathers became enlarged to estates, the estates became towns, and thus, by degrees, the order of the nobility was formed. As they intermarried only among themselves, they preserved a certain individuality. At this day a noble is at once known, no matter how coarsely he may be dressed, or how brutal his habits, by his delicacy of feature, his air of command, even by his softness of skin and fineness of hair. Still the art of reading and writing is scrupulously imparted to all their legitimate offspring, and scrupulously confined to them alone. It is true that they do not use it except on rare occasions, when necessity demands, being wholly given over to the chase, to war and politics, but they retain the knowledge. Indeed, were a noble to be known not to be able to read and write, the prince would at once degrade him, and the sentence would be upheld by the entire caste. No other but the nobles are permitted to acquire these arts. If any attempt to do so, they are enslaved and punished. But none do attempt. Of what avail would it be to them? All knowledge is thus retained in the possession of the nobles. They do not use it, 
but the physicians, for instance, who are famous, are so because by favour of some baron they have learned receipts in the ancient manuscripts which have been mentioned. One virtue, and one only, adorns this exclusive caste. They are courageous to the verge of madness. I had almost omitted to state that the merchants know how to read and write, having special licence and permits to do so, without which they may not correspond. There are few books, and still fewer to read them, and these all in manuscript, for though the way to print is not lost, it is not employed, since no one wants books. End of chapter 4